Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying to the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. We come now to Revelation chapter 8 and to the seventh of the seven seals. And once again, quite frankly, a very difficult chapter to preach. There are any number of things that seem just a little bit out of order or a little bit out of reach, some things that we see but maybe not clearly. But we know that the context of this seventh seal is, of course, the series of seven seals that have come thus far. Or rather, as a whole, the scroll that was sealed. You remember, that's the great crisis point. The great crisis point of Revelation is not the end of the world. It's not whether the the world will end. That much is certain. That's not the crisis. The crisis point is already passed, and the crisis was who is able to open this seal. Remember from Revelation chapter 5, and verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? That was a great crisis point. We saw that, praise God, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, was found worthy to loose those seals. And indeed, that is his great and glorious work throughout all of time. To, this is what is on that, um, what is on that scroll is, is a transcript of all of human history. It's a transcript of the great work of redemption. And he alone is worthy, is able to move things forward, to bring it into being. And that's what he's been doing, and that's what he's doing now. 
to loose those seals and to bring to completion this transcript of redemption. And so he's been doing with the seventh. Yet the thing is, this is not, we come to the end of the seals, but we don't come to the end of Revelation. We're here at the seventh seal, and we are only on the eighth chapter of the book that goes to 21 chapters. We come to the end of the seals, and here again we see that this prophecy is not a singular, straight, chronological progression from beginning to end. It actually has more than these same events more than once from different perspectives. There are parallels. Indeed, we're going to see that what happens now in these seven trumpets are parallel to what has happened in the seals that have already come. The Lord wants us to see that he is in charge and all that he has to come, all that he wishes to bring to be, will certainly bring to be. And mainly, we cannot forget the grand context of this book. The grand context is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ to his church. We must never forget that he is on the throne. He is worthy to open the seals, and he is moving things to the completion. But it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants to see him at work. The prayers of the saints, you see, are being made acceptable, and they will be heard. The angel who will destroy the world, they're already in place, as we already saw. And even the appearance of silence from heaven is not at all reason to think that God is no longer on the throne. Quite the opposite. It may well be the calm before the storm. So these three points. First, the silence. Second, the prayers. And third, the trumpets. We see, first of all, the silence in verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. How are we supposed to understand the silence? Well, at the most basic level, it is the absence of certain voices. Because in former times, we know that the voice of the accuser was to be heard in heaven, accusing the people of God. If you remember, if you've ever read the book of Job, that's the amazing thing, that Satan has access to heaven at this point, and what he is doing is he's accusing the people of God. That's his name, the accuser. But he's been silenced by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's been cast out because there's nothing left to accuse God's people. There's not a single charge that he can bring to you, Because if we said it's not merely the evidence that is gone, it is the crime itself. He's paid for it on the cross. For the sins of God's people, they're either on Jesus Christ or they're on us. And if they're on Jesus Christ, they're paid for entirely. What then does Satan have to bring against God's love? What charge can he bring against us? That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation. And no accusation to be made against God's blood-bought people. Those things have been paid for. So there's no more voice of the accuser. Well, in more recent times, we've seen the martyrs crying out. Even in chapter 6, the martyrs cried out with a loud voice asking, How long, O Lord? They're crying out for their blood to be avenged. They have suffered and they have been persecuted for the testimony that they had. And we saw that this certainly includes those who have physically died, the martyrs, but it probably also includes all of the church, all of the saints, because every last saint 
who has ever lived is called on by God to, to, to suffer to some extent for his name. And they were crying out with a loud voice. Well, why aren't they crying now? Well, because they know their prayers are being answered. They know that their prayers are right now being heard. And they are given assurance that their prayer regarding the, the justice of God will soon enough take place. So we're not hearing the martyrs crying out anymore. Well, in chapters 5 and 7, we also heard the sounds of heavenly worship. This wonderful, amazing, loud sound. Beautiful sound. You know, on, on earth, sometimes you go to congregations and they sing loudly. But perhaps they don't sing well. Or perhaps some others, that they sing well, but not very loudly. Some are singing and some aren't. But in heaven, it seems everyone is singing. And they're all singing well and they're all singing loudly. And it's a beautiful sound. You couldn't at all say that that was silence. Yet here, even that is not mentioned. It's a strange thing. It's not mentioned here. As if to give all the more emphasis to the hearing of these prayers and the answering of these prayers of the saints. Well, what else have we heard in the course of Scripture that gives us any indication of what's going on in heaven? Well, how about in Luke 15, 7? tells us that there is joy in heaven over the repentance of a sinner. Where's that joy? Where's that celebration? Well, perhaps there are no sinners repenting now. You remember that harm, that the end, destruction, was being held back in Revelation 7.3, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. But it would seem that they've all now been sealed. We have the completed number in chapter 7, the completed number of all the redeemed pictured as being there in heaven. In fact, Jesus giving us an opening view of, of all the redeemed saints, including ourselves, there in heaven. They've all repented and they've come to saving faith in Christ. The old world has almost completed its course so there's no more sound of rejoicing at this moment of those who have repented because they've all repented. And that perhaps then goes along with the silencing of a go the gospel on earth. We don't know for sure. But one of the most terrible judgments that we hear in the entire course of Revelation happens in Revelation 18.23. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. Do you know that Christ and his people are, are seen as a lamp? We're not to hide our light. We're to be a light on a hill so that everyone can see the light of God and the light of his word. And the voice of the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? And the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. Who's the bridegroom? It's Christ. How is his voice heard? It's through his church proclaiming the gospel. The bride and the bridegroom. We're the, we're the bride. He's the bridegroom. And it is a terrible, terrible judgment to hear that their voice would no longer be heard on earth. So all these things for which we might have otherwise, there might be sounds of joy, there might be sounds of crying out in heaven, might be sounds of worship at this moment, there are none. What remains on earth is only its destruction. We're almost at that point. And for the moment, there is silence in heaven 
for the space of half an hour. No reason in heaven to cry out, no reason to laugh for joy at this time. And perhaps then there is just this awestruck silence of the awesome things that are yet to happen. So there is silence. And secondly, there are prayers. We read in verse 3, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Now, prayers, that might be the only part that we would get, right? We see something about the prayers of the saints, we get that. But what about the rest of it? What is this incense? What is that about? Why is there anything necessary, as it were, to add or to mix with our prayers? Aren't our prayers enough? On a word, no. No, our prayers are not enough. Think of the picture that we have. This angel was given incense in order to offer it with the prayers of the saints. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascending before God. Because, ladies and gentlemen, our prayers are not good enough on their own. Our prayers are admixed with impure motives. Now we... Some people say that we don't need to be morbidly introspective. They say that we should simply focus on the objective promises of the gospel and we shouldn't worry too much about looking at at ourselves too closely. And there's an element of truth in that. There's an element of truth. But you know what's useful about morbid introspection, if there is such a thing? Um, What's useful about taking a good, hard look at ourselves is that we realize it may be that there's never been a moment of our life on earth where we've had completely pure motives. It may be that. And it may be that even on Sunday morning in church, as we are gathered for prayer, that our prayers at this point are not pure. Because we know that our problem is nothing external, our problem is nothing superficial, our problem is our hearts. And even after we have come to saving faith, even after we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, even after we have been regenerated, yet, because of the weakness of the flesh, our thoughts and our our intents, they remain tainted with sin, and it touches everything that we do, even our prayers. So what are we going to do with those prayers? How is God going to use them? Well, thankfully, He has a way of fixing our prayers. And it's the same way he has of fixing us generally, which is through the mediation of Jesus Christ and his work as our great high priest. Our prayers need to be purified. And here we have the picture of this burning censer. It's hot. It's burning hot. There's fire there. And it is purifying that which is impure. And we think about Christ as the burnt offering and the wrath of God being poured out on him for our sin. And our our prayers in being purified in this way, this continual work of intercession uh, based on what he's done on the cross, purifying our prayers. And then furthermore, even if they are pure, on what basis are they going to be heard? Even the purest prayer, you have to have some, uh, some basis 
some merit by which you can make your case before someone, even if your case is right and pure. Why should God listen to us? even if we've asked it for the purest motives on the, on the world. Well, the reason why he might listen to us is because Christ has invested us. He has given us the infinite merit, the infinite merit of his own work. Remember, it is not just that we are freed from the penalty of sin, because then we'd just sort of be, I don't know, we'd be in no man's land. We wouldn't be in hell, perhaps, paying for our sin. But we certainly wouldn't be in heaven enjoying the infinite wonders and and rewards given to the very favorites of God with Christ himself. You see, that was the other aspect of the work of Christ. It wasn't just to get us out of jail. It was to bring us into the palace. And likewise, in his work, he's not just purifying our sins. He is infusing them with a sweet-smelling aroma, making them acceptable, making them pleasing, making God want to answer them in that sense. Now we know, of course, that it's only the love of God in the first place that ever brought us to that point. It's only the love of God that ever sent Christ. It's all of his plan. Yet it is his plan that Christ would be the mediator between God and man. Perhaps we see that. Christ is the great high priest. And he performs those two priestly functions, you know, is his intercession in terms of propitiation. And most of us understand that we ourselves cannot die on the cross and give ourselves for the sins of God's people. We understand that we do not share in his work in that way. We may suffer for the name of Christ, we may make some sacrifices, but none of these have the slightest effect of paying for sin. And the other priestly function is intercession in terms of prayer. It's both mediation, it's both intercession, But it has to do with the ongoing intercession that he stands at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. Pleading his blood is all on the basis of of that which he's already accomplished. And perhaps we are a little overconfident in thinking about our own prayers. That that aspect of the the high priestly intercession, well, we can handle that, we can at least pray. Well, as we think about it here, Maybe our prayers aren't all that great, and maybe it's the case that Christ has to do just as much in this area as he did in the other. Not only to be a propitiation for our sin, but to make our filthy prayers both acceptable and attractive to be heard through his perfect work, this work of propitiation, this work of mediation between God and man. So who then is this angel that stands as intermediary, as, as a mediator between God and man? This one from whose hands, remember it's from his hand, that these prayers go up before God. And through whose ministrations our prayer reaches God in the right condition that they, need, that they have to have in order to be heard. Well surely it's either Christ or it's one who's pointing us directly to Christ. Because that is the work of Christ. He makes our prayers acceptable. You ever wonder why we end our prayers in saying, in the name of Christ? Well, hopefully it's not just something mechanical. Hopefully we realize that on their own, none of our prayers would ever be acceptable, and it's only in the name of Christ that we are ever heard before God. So, because of these ministrations of the prayers of all the saints, they ascend before God and are heard by him. 
No, those are the prayers offered. That's how they're made acceptable. What's the result? What happens? Well, we can tell sort of what the, the prayer was about by the result. And the result is in verse 5. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. There were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And just to clarify, that's the very same picture that we have coming up in chapter 11, verse 19. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hell. And that is then again repeated in chapter 16 as these cycles explaining the end are repeated in Revelation. So what was the content of the prayer? The content of the prayer is just what the martyrs had been asking for, that the end would come. They were asking the question, how long, O Lord, until you bring in the end, you vindicate our blood, you save those servants on the earth, and you bring the rebels, the obstinate, unrepentant sinners to judgment. How long? Well, the answer was not long. And there, this very, to think of it, the very instrument that was previously being used to purify the prayers of the saints is now being cast to earth, used to bring in judgment against the unrepentant sinners. Surely if this angel is not himself Christ, he is one who is pointing us directly to Christ. That Jesus Christ, the same man, the same one who died on the cross for our sins, well, when he returns, he will come to bring judgment. The same great instrument different aspects of one great work a great work of redemption that is so so centered on the holiness of God we've seen it throughout Revelation if there's anything bigger than what the, the, the sort of picture that I've already been bringing if there's anything more than that anything more ultimate than that it is the holiness of God that is what is pictured in the heavenly throne room holy 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 the Lord God Almighty. That is what is pictured when we see Jesus Christ. And remember, it's all about seeing Christ, isn't it? If you haven't seen Christ in this sermon, then the sermon hasn't worked because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what we know about Jesus Christ as we see him portrayed for us in chapter 1, it is the holiness of Christ with the burning eyes, a flame of fire, eyes that are so holy they will not behold, they will not countenance sin. And this work of redemption from beginning to end is about putting to end, about destroying sin, making purification for it. For those who are God's people, that was done on the cross. Jesus Christ himself taking that penalty in order that our sin might be done away with. For those who do not believe, Jesus Christ will certainly also bring their sins into remembrance and their sins will also be enmeshed in fire in a different way though as he brings them to judgment in the end
Well, there's silence. There are prayers, and as we've seen, these prayers are for the the very thing that the martyrs have been asking for, that the end would come, that the work of redemption, the work of salvation, and the work of judgment, which are all one, would be completed. And third, we have the trumpets. The trumpets are issued. Verse 2, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now this, some would say, what is the content of this seventh seal? Well, the content of the seventh seal, the intangible sense, is to bring in the seven trumpet judgments. It's sort of in some sense like a Russian doll. One layer is removed and there are other layers uh, contained in it. And that's what this is. Now we have the seven trumpet judgments that are going to be explained for us. And we'll speak more of this in Lord Willie next time. But for the moment, I just make a couple of general observations. One is that God has long made use of trumpets. This is not the first time we have mention of trumpets in God's word. And perhaps the most direct precedent for seven trumpets bringing in judgment would be Jericho. Joshua and the battle of Jericho. You remember in Joshua chapter 6, And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, The priest shall blow the trumpets, and you know the rest of the story. Though trumpets are sometimes just used for signaling, here they were not just used to signal the end, they were used to actually bring in the destruction of Jericho, the judgment of that city. Well, indeed, you could say that the blowing of trumpets in the Old Testament is almost a concentrated form of salvation generally. Like in Numbers 10, where trumpets are mentioned a number of times, And the the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets, and these shall be in ordinance forever throughout the generations. When you go to, to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you'll be saved from your enemies. So remember, there's a salvation in the sense of the enemies are coming against the people of God The trumpets are blown, and it's not that they're saved because some army who's waiting to hear those trumpets somewhere else has come to the rescue. It's that God himself hears, and he acts to save them. And then there's salvation in a different sense. Also, in the day of your gladness, in your appointed feast, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. And here it's speaking of not salvation from enemies, but salvation from our own sin. These burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, the trumpet is the instrument reminding God of these things and making them efficacious for God's people. So this trumpet, again, is an instrument of bringing about salvation. Now, trumpets are given to seven angels. Just briefly, I'd mention, of course, that these seven angels, we've seen that already in chapter 1. The seven stars is explained. You know, we wonder, who are these seven stars? It's explained at the end of of chapter 1, verse 20. It says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And we said it's a little bit of an open question whether we're talking about actual angels or maybe in some other sense we're talking about the ministers of those churches because we know that these seven letters to the seven churches are each addressed to the angel of the church of this or the angel of the church of that. And these were real letters with real addresses in Asia Minor. 
Now, so if that's the case, if there's an element of which we are also looking not only at angelic messengers, but those who have in some way that earthly task, would that be the case then? That earthly ministers proclaiming God's word, that the human proclamation of the word of God actually plays some role in judgment? Yes. Yes, I would think that that would be the case, actually. And I'll speak more on that in just a moment. But for now, let's consider how we apply these things, how we apply Revelation chapter 8 to ourselves. And the first application has to do with our prayers. And I would say just simply, we must pray. Prayer is an absolutely vital part of our lives. He has made us to be kings and priests. That's the wonderful thing. He has made us all to be kings and priests. And this great priestly role that we have, however imperfectly, however it needs to be washed in the blood of Christ, however it needs to be mixed with the incense that Christ gives us, our role, our privilege is to pray. We pray all these things that the saints have been praying for. Yes, that God would judge the wicked, the enemies of God, the persecutors of his people. We have to start with that because I think that's the emphasis here. We may not ever take our own revenge, but rather we as God's whole people, as God's whole church, pray that God himself would in his time avenge on the enemies. But mainly, at the moment, you know that this is the day of salvation. The day is going to come to, the the days on earth, the time on earth is going to come to an end soon enough. But right now it is a day of salvation. And what we pray is that God would have mercy on people and save many. For this moment, this day of salvation, that is our great focus as a church. We pray that this atoning work of Christ would be applied that the great sound of the gospel would be made clear and through the Holy Spirit bring people into saving faith in Christ. That God would save many as this part of the work of redemption, as the seals. Remember that the work right now, the great work right now is that the servants of God are sealed. Before the end can possibly come, all the servants of God must be sealed. And that is what we pray for. And certainly then we pray also that God would uphold one another because we are all so weak. We need to be upheld. There's no way that we're going to make it without prayer for one another. And we, above all, in this place and this time, need that prayer. Well, what are we praying for ultimately when we think of all these things together? We're praying that the Lamb would open those seals and the scroll. We're praying that the whole number of God's people would be sealed. We're praying for every detail of redemptive history. We're praying for judgment. We're praying that God would accomplish his wonderful, glorious purposes. And you know the wonderful thing about Sundays, the wonderful thing about the Lord's Day is that we get to do it together. There's this wonderful corporate aspect of prayer because that's what is being particularly looked at here. Not just individual prayer, but remember it is the prayers of all the saints working together in this. 
Or in Revelation 5, 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the, the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Reminder of the work of the elders of God's people, in some sense to collect the prayers of God's people, to, to re-offer them and to focus them. Is that not the work then, of our corporate prayer? We bring these things together before God. So we should pray. And second, we need to think of the means of grace. They're not just as a means of salvation, but also as a means of judgment. What are the means of grace? Well, we know it's, for instance, the word, sacraments, and prayer. And we know that this is the only way by which people receive salvation. That's why we don't do some things that some other churches might. Because those things are not stamped with God's approval, saying this is my means of grace by which I'm going to bring people to salvation, which I'm going to bring up and build up God's people as they're being sanctified and strengthened for my work. He hasn't put his stamp of approval on videos, on puppet shows, on, on entertainment of any kind. He's put his stamp of approval on the word, sacraments, and prayer. So they're the means of salvation, but they're also the means of judgment. First of all, prayer, as we've already seen. You want to know what this whole, how you could summarize this whole book? How you could summarize the very end of the world? Why did it happen? If we could look at it in some way, why is this end being brought about? Do you know why it's happening? It's an answer to prayer. God's people, however weak, prayed to God and said, bring about the end. Bring about the judgment. And it happens. It's all an answer to prayer. It's no less an answer to prayer than their own salvation. We know that every part of our salvation is an answer to someone's prayer. Well, that's prayer. It's also sacraments. You know that it is a, if received in faith, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. But we also know each and every time we share the Lord's Supper that part of the warning is this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine: For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so here we have, again, this possibility that this very means of grace would become a means of judgment for those who refuse or those who take it wrongfully, those who do not receive it in faith. Each and every last thing that for those who receive it in faith becomes a means of their salvation becomes for those who reject and those who do not receive it in faith a means of their judgment. And likewise, and certainly with the word of God, we see this thoroughly in the, the book of Isaiah. We know that generally in the, the word of God, as it says in Isaiah 55, so shall my word be that goes forth my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. And we see then that it's, how does that explain then the word of God? Well, wait, hold on. Every time that the word of God is preached, shouldn't that mean then that every last person would come to saving faith in Christ? Well, we know it does something. What if every last time it does either that or it's used as an instrument of judgment against those who refuse? Even the word of God, you see, it's both of those things. In the very moment when Isaiah is being commissioned as a prophet to preach to the people, you remember how his commission went in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Go and tell this people, 
Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Because most of the people that heard Isaiah, sadly, did not turn. Most of the people that heard the words of the gospel did not repent, did not put their faith in this word. And that does not mean that the word of God was void. It did not mean that Isaiah failed. It meant that in that case, in those cases, it was being used as an instrument of judgment. And of course, supremely over all these things is Christ himself, because he is the great agent of both salvation and of judgment. What do we ask when we say, with the closing words of this entire book, Amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus. What are we saying? Come, Lord Jesus. We're saying that he would perform and bring to completion his great work of both of these things, both of salvation and of judgment, because these two things are inextricably linked. You can't have, in a fallen, sinful world, you cannot have one without the other. And in order for God's people to be saved from their enemies, the enemies have to be defeated. In order for the, God's people to be saved from their sins, well, those sins have to be dealt with very severely by someone. There can be no salvation without judgment. And when we pray, come Lord Jesus, we are praying both for salvation and for judgment to come. And so then in all these means of grace, the church itself becomes, strangely somehow, this great means of bringing forward the work of redemption in all of its, all of its huge, huge scope, universal scope, and even its smallest detail, the agents under Christ, both of judgment and of salvation. So think on the means of grace and just how powerful they are. Thirdly and finally, we're reminded that silence is not yet. Soon enough they'll come, that moment of silence, that half hour, that terrible moment of silence, that the end is imminent, but it's not yet. Right now, we are commanded not to be silent. Right now, we're like Paul, and particularly those who have been set aside for this task, or particularly like Paul in Acts 18, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. Right now, on the day of salvation, it is our job to not be silent. You know that the great machinations, the great desire of wicked men on this earth is to silence the church. You can do whatever you want for all I care. Just shut up. Please stop speaking the word of God in my presence. I cannot stand to have my sins exposed that way, even if you don't say a word about their sins. The word of God, so sharp and so powerful, it is offensive to people. But we must not be silent. We cannot be silenced. And that is what this book is also about. It is about the faithful witnesses on earth, however few, remaining faithful and speaking what they must. We may not be silent. We continue to speak. Well, let us pray. Lord God, 
we consider the magnificence of your plan. We consider the immense power of these weak means of grace, even this, that which we pray right now, these prayers that seem so weak, yet, Lord, we know that they accomplish so much in the hands of Christ in his great work of purifying and of sweetening through his sacrifice for us on the cross. Lord, we pray that your word would work. We pray that it would bring about the salvation of the hearers and the building up of your people. And Lord, yes, if it must, even to be an element, an instrument of judgment. But Lord, on this, the day of salvation, we pray that you would bring many sons of glory and that there would be among us many who would be there on that final day among the redeemed of God who put their faith in Christ. We pray this for your glory and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.